It's my joy to be able to open the Word uh, for us today, and uh, we are at the first week of the month, which means we are now focusing on our prayer passage. If you don't know what I'm talking about, we have a Bible reading plan we've been doing together as a church. There are actually three different options, but for all of them, we have prayer um, emphases throughout the week. And uh, at the the first of every week on Mondays, we have a, a prayer passage that we're praying through. And so whenever we have that, the first week of the month, we always go over that first so that you kind of know uh, how to be praying throughout this, this month. So if I look in here at the month of June, you can see that we're looking at 1 Thessalonians, and uh, verse chapter 3, verses 9 through 13. So what I'm going to do today is to preach through this text primarily with that as an emphasis. How should we be praying for this for each other each Monday throughout the month of June? Now, before I get started, I do want to make note of a couple of things. I mentioned ahead of time that we have an informational meeting right after the service. If you didn't make time for that, we're going to let you slip out. It shouldn't take more than five or ten minutes, um, but uh, we'll let you slip out during the last uh, closing song. And then also, youth group parents, I know you know this already, but we are meeting downstairs after that to have a lunch and chat over a couple of things youth group related, so I just wanted to make a note of that as we get started. Let's go ahead, though, and uh, with turning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, let's pray and ask for God's help. And then we'll uh, jump right into the text together. Dear God, we pray that you would help us now as we give attention to your word. Help us to listen carefully as worshipers who, before you even speak the first word, already are ready to obey. Help us as we strive together in the faith this week, as we pray for each other this passage, that you would drive its truths home into our heart. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Well, uh, I am no Pastor Greg, but Pastor Greg always says, kids, I've got something for you today, all right? So I've got something for the kids this morning, but it's really for all of us. And the question is simply this, if you have had a really good teacher or a really good coach, I want you to think about that coach or that teacher and find a commonality between any good coach or any good teacher. There were some things as you start to think about them, there would be some things that would come to mind. A really good teacher is someone who's going to encourage you right? Not discourage you or cut you down. But if all you ever got from a good coach or a good teacher was you're doing a great job, everything's perfect, would they really be a good coach or a good teacher? No, you'd need something else too, wouldn't you? You'd actually also need to be stretched. You'd need that coach or that teacher to say, you can do a little bit better, right? If your teacher always says, you're great, you're perfect. Imagine this, if I was as a first grader, my teacher was my mom. And my mom, let's say she was a really good encourager, and she said, Pastor Chris, which she did not call me Pastor Chris, all right? She called me Christopher. She said, Christopher, you're doing a great job at school today. And that's all she ever told me. And I said, but I want to learn more. And she said, but you're doing such a great job. And I said, but can I learn how to write? And she said, no, you're doing such a good job. Would she have been a very good teacher? No, right? She actually had to say, you're doing a good job, but there's more you need to learn. There's more you can learn. You can do a little bit better. Now, on the other hand, if every time I went to my mom and I said, did I do a good job? And she said, well, you could have done better. Maybe that would have been a little discouraging, wouldn't it? So to be a good coach or to be a good teacher, you have to have kind of both of those things. You have to be able to encourage someone with where they're at and at the same time say, but there's more steps ahead. You can grow. There's a sense in which the Apostle Paul in this passage is that coach. He is that teacher. He's coming to young people in the faith, young believers, and he's going to just 
pour on praises for God's work inside their hearts. He's going to, at this point in the letter, have recounted all the ways he's seen God at work in them. But he's not content to stop there. Gently and with great courage, he steps out and says, but there's more that is lacking in your faith, and I want to help in that way. As we pray this passage for each other this month, we're going to need both of those things to be appropriate helps to each other, aren't we? If the only thing you hear from other people in the church is only ever, there's no growth, there's no change, there's more you need to do, you can imagine how much that might press on your soul. I think our temptation is often the other, that the only thing we offer is encouragement, and we see things lacking and decide not to step in and help. But to be what we need to be for each other this month, we do need that, don't we? We need both of those things. God has provided that for each other in each other. And that's what this little section in 1 Thessalonians focuses on. So let's strive together in the faith. There's no silo Christians or solo Christians in true Christianity. God does not save us and put us on an island. He puts us into a community. But the community is only as helpful as much as we take our responsibilities to others seriously. And it's only helpful to us if we take their responsibilities to us seriously and are willing to be taught and are willing to hear correction. This text then prepares our heart for that ministry, both given and received. Now, let's gather a little bit of context here, and I will promise to be brief. This is a relationship that is obviously very warm, as you're going to hear Paul speak. These are people he deeply cares about, and the book of Acts has actually told us how he met them in the first place. And I won't have you turn there, but in Acts chapter 17, we find that he delivers the gospel to them. Paul declared the gospel both to Jews and to Greeks. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue in Thessalonica, declared to them the gospel, and then also taught the Greeks the gospel. And many people came to the faith. But there was a problem, and that is that there, were, there was a jealous group of Jewish believers. In response to this turning in faith, they did what you might expect anybody who had power and is losing it to do. They raised a mob against Paul and Silas. So much so that the house leader of that church there was dragged out into the street. His name was Jason and beaten. They took money from him and then kicked Paul and Silas out of the town. We don't know how long Paul was there, but it's likely it was just a few weeks he had an opportunity to speak to these dear believers. And they and he had both suffered because of his ministry. So you would do exactly what Paul did in this time. Now a few months on, he sends one of his own helpers back to Thessalonica. And he does so because he wants to know one question. Are they still believing? He knows what it took, what it cost for them to accept the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Timothy, we find in verse 6 of chapter 3, brings a good report of their faith. Look with me down there. Timothy now has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remembered us kindly and longed to see us as we long to see you. You can see this fatherly affection Paul has for here, these dear believers. Timothy bringing this great report that they're still believing, they're still trusting in spite of the opposition. Paul then receives comfort in the midst of his affliction. Paul was not done suffering for Christ. He would have many more sufferings to go. This is probably the first letter that Paul ever wrote. Paul says in verse 7, For this reason, brothers, because of your faith, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, or you could say it like this, for now we really live. 
we truly have life. We have good, we have a good life if you are standing fast in the Lord. Paul, in a sense, as their spiritual father has tied his heart's joy to their faith. And now in this moment, he's telling them, when we heard that good report to you, it was like life was brought into our bodies. In spite of the affliction, in spite of the suffering we're going through, in spite of all of that, we have joy. And it's because of your faith. These are new believers who, in spite of the sufferings they faced, have kept holding on to the faith. You can see already that spirit of encouragement from the teacher, Paul. The spirit of encouragement from the coach, Paul. He says, I see you're holding fast. And when you hold fast, it comforts me. This gospel has been delivered and now confirmed. Let's enter now into the meat of the passage that we'll be praying for each other, starting in verse 9. If you'll read that with me, he says, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? This is what I'm calling deep joy at others' faith. Paul models this for us, and this is one of the things I hope God grows in our hearts this month. That we, like Paul, would actually derive joy and comfort at others' success in their faith. He uses a very strong word here, this kind of superlative expression. All the joy in which we rejoice could be a literal translation of verse 7. He's already mentioned comfort back in verse 6. This joy, and look at verse 9 with me now. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel. That word feel is actually for all the joy that we joy. It just doesn't make a lot of sense in English, so they try to smooth it out. He says, every joy we experience we tie back to the fact that you're growing in faith. You are the cause for our joy, he says. And it's personal. Twice he says it's for you or for your sake or on your account, the account of your faith. Verse 7 and 8 mention that. For that reason, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted through your faith. Now we really live if you're still standing fast in the faith. Paul is full of joy because of their faith. Now, if you were to ask Paul, what are some examples of the kinds of faith that you're pointing out? You could come back through, and maybe this would be something you should do this afternoon, or as you pray this on Mondays. Look at the book of 1 Thessalonians, because Paul outlines that. He says, I've seen this, I've seen this, I've seen this. For some examples, chapter 1, verse 3, I've seen your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope. Verse 6, you've received the word in spite of the affliction you faced. Verse 9, you turned from idols to serve the true God. Verse 10, you're waiting for God's return. Verse uh, 13 of chapter 2, you accepted the preached word is from God. Verse 14 of chapter 2, you suffered because of your faith. This is what he's seeing in them. These are the things that are causing him to be full of joy. These are the personal nature, this is the personal nature of their faith that he's seeing and expressing gratitude for. Now, this is a little hard to bring out in our translation. You see it says in verse 9, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? But what Paul is trying to express is that he cannot express adequately his thanksgiving to God. The joy that he's experienced by looking at their faith flourish, he can't meet with gratitude. The best gratitude he can give falls way short of what it deserves. And he actually says this in kind of a payment structure, like he uses an accounting term here. We could phrase it like this, how can we repay God for such joy? And the point is, we can't. He owes God. Now remember, Paul had been beaten and persecuted and chased out of town. He says that when you count up everything, like a, 
like an accountant. You take all the sufferings he's, he's experienced, and now you take the joy that he's experienced at watching their faith. He says it far surpasses that. And because of that, he's now left with an overwhelming debt he can't repay. Now that's joy, isn't it? Joy that doesn't just surpass the sufferings, but so surpasses it that he can't fill in the gap with thanksgiving. He says that this is God word, this kind of thanksgiving. He says, repay God or return to God, or he experiences this joy, he says in verse 9, before God, or in the presence of God is the maybe a more literal way of phrasing that. In the presence of God, we're experiencing this joy. But he's clearly speaking rhetorically. He's saying, I have no equal response for such joy. Now, as a parent, you may have an insight into what this looks like. I mean, there's joy when you experience things. But there's deep joy when you see your children, isn't it? The same thing goes the other way, doesn't it? There's heartache that you experience and deep heartache that your children experience. What Paul is saying is, like your father, seeing your faith still thriving gives me a joy I cannot describe. I used to be quite a fan of Tiger Woods. I was kind of in my early high school days when he was destroying the world of golf in his, with his playing. He now hobbles around the course and does his best. But there was a recent occasion that you may have seen in the news, and that was Tiger Woods, now two years in a row, has played with his son at a special tournament. Now, you don't have to be a sports enthusiast to notice that there are certain kinds of people that winning drives them beyond everything else. When I was growing up, Michael Jordan, and you know, Tiger Woods, another one. Winning is all that matters, and yet on the day, this last time when he played with his son, he said this to, at an interview. He said, the last few weeks, I pushed as hard as I ever have. The last seven months, I took no days off. I worked every single day. And the last part of his quote, he says this, it's worth all the pain because he got to play with his son. That's worth more than all the work he's done before. He says, I worked harder for this than anything else in the past. That's the kind of pleasure that Paul is deriving from their faith, seeing a child grow up, his spiritual child. Let me just remark that as a pastor, this is the experience that we get to experience that is a special thing. There is no joy, no joy that is equal to seeing people in your church take a hold of the word of God and believe it. It's worth every hardship, every pain, every suffering. It far surpasses it. This is what Paul's saying. The same is the true the opposite way. To see someone turn from God or push God back or respond in hostility towards God's word is the most grievous thing a pastor can face. And this should be the case even for us internally. When you see another brother or a sister in Christ, someone here who takes a hold of the word of God and believes it in such a way that it flourishes in their life, you see the results of that faith. Paul says you should derive great joy from that. This is how we should talk, not just to God, but to each other. You can see the depth of this relationship here. This joy, this deep joy at others' faith. Paul then turns his attention now to his commitment to their faith. It's not enough to see God having worked. Neither should it be enough for us. But to press on, like that coach, like that teacher that says, but there's more. God can do more. 
So he says that he's going to commit himself to their faith. This commitment is constant. He describes it like this, that he prays night and day. Every moment he is awake, he is passionately praying for them. How can you pray for others this month as we pray this passage on Mondays? Well, let me encourage you that if you've joined our prayer partnership program, that you should start there. Be, be consistent. And maybe you say, you know what, I, I haven't been consistent this time around, and I'm kind of embarrassed now to start because we only have a little bit left. It's not too late. Contact your prayer partner. Say, how could I be praying for you? Spend some time praying for them. Praying that they, pray that they would prize Christ above all else. Like these Thessalonians, they'd be willing to, to suffer for Christ's sake. Pray that they would not be taken in by the world, the flesh, the devil. Pray that they would use their gifts for you and for others. Pray that they would be teachable and soft to the word of God. Paul's praying for them, and so we should pray for each other to see the, the seeds of faith sprout in each other's lives. We could ask, Paul, how is it that you derive so much joy out of other people's faith? I want that maybe, but how do you get there? I think Paul in part would answer with verse 10. You pray for them. You pray for them. You desire that God would be at work in each other's lives, and then when you see it, it's all the sweeter because you've anticipated it in prayer. You've partnered with God in it in prayer. This is hard, again, to bring out in the translation. Verse 10 says, As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may, seek what, uh, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. That phrase, most earnestly, is... Our translations attempt at trying to kind of bring out the importance of this word. But it's a very urgent idea. We could phrase it like this, as earnestly as I possibly can. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, this is the same word Paul uses to say God can do far more abundantly. It's the biggest superlative term he can use. This is what he does when he describes his prayer. We could, ask, we could say it another way like this. Paul could say it. There is no possibility that I could pray any more urgently for this than I am right now. Now, I have a question for us. Would that describe your prayer life for other Christians? That's a hard thing to raise my hand and say, yeah, that, that describes how I pray for others. Paul says, more urgently than any other urgency I could possibly muster is the urgency I have in prayer for others. This is part of the reason why he receives such joy at their faith, isn't it? This superlative is the most extreme form available to Paul. Paul also says that he wants his ministry to them as he starts to turn in that coaching aspect to say, but there's more I want to see in your life. He says he turns it, uh, it's a very personal approach. He wants a face-to-face -face visit. In fact, he's already said in chapter 2 of verse 17, that since they were torn away from you, brothers, for, such a short, for a short time, in person, not in heart, in other words, I'm still there with you, we've endeavored more eagerly and with great desire to see your face. This is Paul's desire to spend time with each other. Now, Paul was separated by distance. We're not. We're sitting in the same room with each other. So part of us praying this for each other on Mondays is actually personally ministering to one another, seeing each other face to face. There's nothing I more enjoy about our church than going over to people's homes and vice versa. Having those kinds of commonalities where we spend time with each other, this prayer, in a sense, encourages that. As Paul says, I want to minister to you face to face. 
but it's also a focused ministry. Paul says he needs to remedy areas where they yet lack in their faith. Like I've already mentioned, Paul is a great coach. He's a great teacher. He's a great shepherd because he doesn't just encourage them, even though he's seen great work from God in their hearts. He says, there's still things that are lacking. There's still things I need you to grow in. So he desires to make those right. Now these, some of these matters he's going to address in the next chapter. In fact, my, one of my commentators I read this week titled chapter 4 through chapter 5, The Things They Were Lacking. Right? This is the thing he wants to talk to them about. Sometimes that involves correction. Chapter 4 is a great example of that. Chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 5 as well. Sometimes it involves instruction where he has to give them certain descriptions of what they still lack in their knowledge. The two things can be true. You can have joy in someone's current faith and yet still see the need for more. This is what Paul is saying. And one of God's greatest gifts to us is each other. We, in our diversity, have that ability to help encourage each other and yet spur each other on. What Paul's saying here is that as I look around to other believers, I both joy in a way that I cannot repay with thanksgiving. And I also say, but there's still more. God still has yet more to do in your life. There is a sense in which caring for each other requires that kind of care. It requires that kind of stirring up of each other's gifts. It requires that kind of urging each other on in faith and prayer. So Paul is going to turn the conversation to this future faith in chapter 4, verse 1 and following. So I want you to take some assessment right now before we jump into the next little section here and ask yourself this. When it comes to your care for one another, do you, well, let's do it in reverse order because I think Paul would almost encourage that kind of thinking. Do you pray for each other with this kind of urgency? I mean, really, do you, do you say, you know what? First of all, I want to pray for some things I see lacking. I will tell you some of mine that I know about and you can fill in the, the gaps of all you know about my failings. Pastor Chris tends to get so bogged down in details that he can forget about people. And I do, admittedly. So pray for me that way, urgently. Day in and day out, don't, make, don't let him get bogged down in the details. Help him to remember the people. That's one of my failings, one of many, I'm certain. That's one of the things that I want prayer for. And I need you to fill that gap with your prayers. And then secondly... Do you joy in success? Do you joy in each other's faith? You see somebody who just six months ago, you know they would have responded with a moment of anger. And yet they heard the bad news. You stood there next to them. And they said, you know what? This is going to take me a bit to get over. But let me, let me think about this. That's a moment of praise. I'm going to give some examples of how to do that here later on. This is how we are meant to be, like, a, like a, a forest of trees that are all intertwined at the roots, that your joys are my joys and your heartaches, yours, your gaps of faith are my gaps of faith. Paul has wound himself together with these believers in this way. I want to encourage us now to turn to rich prayers for each other's faith, as if to double down on this moment of prayer, Paul then describes exactly what he's praying for them. For as of yet, we only know that he does pray for them day and night. And now he's going to say, here's what the prayers contain. 
Here are his rich prayers for each other's faith. He first of all prays for his own personal ministry to them. Verse 11 says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. He says again, now a second time in these short verses, I want to come to you. Now, first of all, there are actually two kind of ways in this last section of this prayer where Paul underscores the Trinitarian nature of God. And I don't want to get bogged down here, but I do want to point it out because I think it would have read very oddly to Paul's people. And for that reason, I think he's trying to highlight something. This is to the Father and the Son. I put up there that you should see Deuteronomy 6.4. Does anybody know what that passage says? That's the famous Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Paul actually uses a lot of those key terminologies that they would have used as well, except he does something a little bit odd in the grammar. Now, stick with me. Um, I said grammar, I know, but listen. What Paul is going to say is he says, God, God and Father and the Lord Jesus, and then he uses a singular verb. Now, if you're like, what just happened? Let me say it like this. Even a small child would know this is wrong. If I said something like this, if I said something like, Chris and Megan is a good you know, help you would say that's not even, that doesn't make any sense. But he uses a singular verb to essentially tie together the Lord Jesus and God as one. And he uses this terminology, Lord, and he uses the terminology for Yahweh or Adonai, Lord, in the same thing, these, these two Greek words. It seems he's borrowing from Deuteronomy 6.4 to underscore God's divinity, uh, the Trinitarian nature of God. And he does so in a way that's shocking to our original listener. That's not correct grammar. Oh, he's saying that Jesus is God. He prays then to God the Father and to Jesus as one. And he asks one request, and that is simply this, and I phrased it this way, clear the way for us. See chapter 218 where he describes um, the opposition from Satan. He says, I wanted to come to you, I again and again, but Satan hindered us. So here he prays, God, make a way. He prays for his own personal ministry to them. And that's something you can pray for each other this month as well. God, give me an opportunity to speak. I see something lacking, or I see something I want to encourage this believer with. I don't know how to approach them with that. Make a way. Make a way for me to do that. Then have them over. Then go spend time with them. This is one of God's greatest ministries to us, is other people in the church. So pray for God to make those ways clear. And secondly, he prays for their growth and love-filled holiness. There's kind of a content shift here that the ESV doesn't bring out in particular, but if you look at verse, um, verse 12, he says, and may the Lord make you increase. The start of that actually says something more like this, but as for you, may the Lord make you increase. And some translations bring that a little, a little bit differently. So he's, he's signaling, I'm now talking about something else. When I pray, I pray for myself that I would have an opportunity to minister to you. And for you, I pray this, he says. First of all, I pray that God would act, that he would act in your life. And he has a particular thing in mind. Look down at verse 12. He says, may the Lord make you increase. The word there is to cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. May the Lord be at work in you. Now, when, like Paul, you see something lacking in somebody else, what are the other alternatives to asking God to be at work in their hearts? or trying to participate in that. Well, we resort to all kinds of things, don't we? Maybe you have a child in your home who likes to manipulate things. 
And isn't that true that sometimes what we do is we see it's something lacking and rather than speaking truth and kindness to them, we try to kind of manipulate them into seeing the problem. And sometimes, you know what, no matter how much you manipulate somebody, they need something inside them from God's perspective to change them, not your manipulation. I think this is also an appropriate reminder to us that we are not God. So here he's praying for God to do a work in their hearts, which reminds Paul at the same time that he is not God. He cannot be in God's place. So often when you try to minister to someone and they don't respond, you can almost rise up in anger or frustration or hostility because they should listen. But God's the one at work. You are simply a tool in God's hand. Do your part and leave the rest to God. You should be able to sleep well at night even if people aren't responding to truth you're offering them because God's the one who needs to be at work. We need to remember our place, and that's a good thing, even if we're trying to minister to others. Sometimes we recognize that we can't act because we realize we don't have the kind of contact we wish we had. Maybe it's relational distance. You want to minister to someone, but they have so stiff-armed your ministry that you cannot do anything. Or maybe it's a child who has since long moved away, and the Geographical distance just gives you so few opportunities even though you see something lacking. This is a good reminder for us all as Paul starts his prayer for them with God, you have to do it. God must act. And the result is going to be this, spilling over love for each other. Spilling over love for each other. Tangible love marked by hard work, simplicity, care observed even by outsiders. And that's what he's going to talk about in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. But he has an end in mind, and the end is simply this, that we would be blameless, that is outwardly, and holy, that is set apart before God's face. What God can see would be holy and set apart. This is the result, we could say, of the love that, he's been, that he prays for. Verse 12 and verse 13 says it like this, so that, or with this result, or for this end, that he may establish, that is to fix your heart, blameless. That's a, an external word that people would look at you and say, there's nothing I, that sticks against them, no accusation that would stick. And that they would have holiness before God, before God's own eyes, God and Father. Paul then desires both inward and outward change. And he's praying for God to do this. And what's the vehicle through which God will produce this blameless? This blamelessness. What's the vehicle through which God will produce this kind of holiness, this set-apartness, even in our own spirits? It's actually love for one another. What would this love look like? Would it not look like what Paul has already been describing? For you to be so invested in each other's spiritual growth that success for them is joy for you. That something lacking in them is an opportunity for you to speak the truth in love. This is what Paul has been demonstrating, which is why at the end of verse 12 he says, Pray for, or love one another as we do for you. Who produced that love for them? Did Paul produce that love for them in his own heart? God did that. That's what Paul's saying. And then lastly, he mentions another kind of Trinitarian sting at the end of this passage. He said that Lord God or Jesus will come again. This is a lot of his teaching in chapter 4 and chapter 5, that there is a coming of the Lord in the future, and he's going to describe more of that. That seems to be some of what was lacking for them, their knowledge of exactly how that worked. 
So he already starts to turn the conversation that way at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. But what he does is curious. He actually quotes from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And he quotes from the book of Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 5. It ends like this, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Here, and then in chapter 14, verse 5 of Zechariah, he says, the Lord my God will come with all of his saints. He's quoting from this, and the only word he switches out is my God with our Jesus. And once again, what he's saying is Jesus is God. Here twice in this little prayer, Paul's underscoring the fact that Jesus is divine and he will come again. In fact, by the time he gets back around to talking about this same coming that Zechariah talks about in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, he quotes again from this and says that Christ himself will be the judge. Paul then prays with an end in mind that one day, there is a coming day where each of the people he's praying for will be complete in Christ. And that's the end to which he's praying. You can see why he's so earnest in this prayer. There is a deadline he sees in the future. There's a deadline he keeps before his eyes that there is a day where all God's work will be done and I want to earnestly pray and partner with each other so that I see that taking place before my very eyes. This little prayer then is so packed with this kind of pastoral love for these people, isn't it? But it's a love that doesn't just want to encourage, although it certainly wants to do that. It's a love that wants to spur on in love. God has been work at work clearly in Paul's heart. And this is the kind of love God wants us to mature in our own. I want to end then just with three brief applications on how we can pray this for each other. How can we pray 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 9 through 13? First of all, can I encourage you to joyfully thank God for his work in others? Here's what I would encourage you to do if you say, I'm not sure where to start. I would start with a blank piece of paper, and I would write somebody's name at the top of it. And then I would ask this question, how have I seen God at work in their lives? Pick someone you know well, pick someone that you fellowship with regularly. How have you seen God at work in their lives? Write it down. And then talk to God about that person's growth. God, what I've seen in this person has been, has brought me joy that I can't repay with gratitude. But it takes observing it. It takes stopping and looking. It's like that moment when you see your little ones suddenly growing up before you. You say, look at what they can do now. But it takes stopping. It takes looking at them. And there's a sense in which we should do that to each other. Not in any kind of pejorative sense, but truly to say, I've seen growth. I really have. God, you've been doing that. I can tell you one of the ways that God has helped me do this. I, I journal fairly regularly. It's not like what I did that day. Usually it's just thoughts that I need to get out before I say them to other people. <laughs> um, here's some things I'm thinking about and mulling over and what I've been reading. And one of the things I do is I, I will journal about you all. Did you know that you're in my journals? And what I do is I'll tag you with your name and then when I pray over you, I can go back years and see times I interacted with you where I saw things God was doing or I saw things that I thought I needed to minister to you in. And to see God's work like that is special. I'll just click, it's digital, so I'll click that little tag and then, of course, and then I'll see all those things. Pastor Greg would have reams of paper he'd be flipping through, but we're different and that's okay. But I'd see that, and I have done that. To see, you know what, three or four years ago, this is where this person was. Look at what God has done. It gives perspective to each other's growth. 
I would encourage you to joyfully thank God for his work in others, to take note of that before God, to rejoice in that. Secondly, partake in God's present work in others. So pray for their weaknesses. Don't be frustrated by them only. Don't only see them and complain in your own heart or to your spouse. That does them no good and you no good. Well, that's an area of God allowed you to see that weakness where God is expecting you to do exactly what he's just said, to supply what is lacking in their faith. So if God has given you the eyes to see, you are obligated to earnestly pray for them. It is possible that no one has ever seen that before, and God has given you that insight. So you now have the weight of responsibility to partner with them. Secondly, don't shrink back from loving confrontation because it hurts you. Paul received lots of hostility through his ministry from people who would say as much like this, who are you to tell me how to act? Who are you to correct me by the word? The book of 1 Corinthians was essentially written to a group of people like that, where Paul had to defend his ministry, saying, I am trying to do what is good for you, even if it hurts me. Will you care for others, even if it causes you pain? And if someone is trying to correct you or provide that kind of correction for you, would you receive it? Don't push back in hostility. Finally, then, pray for God's future work in others. And here I'm primarily thinking about verse 13. For Paul, in a sense, he worries in a biblical way for people. What I mean by that is worry often takes a possibility, thinks about it so much that it becomes a probability, and thinks about that so much that it becomes a certainty. And Paul does that for them. He thinks about what it would be like if they had this kind of love for each other. And then he envisions them down that road until it becomes a certainty, and he sees them on the day when Christ returns, and he envisions them like that. Would you look at each other, especially when you see failings, and say, what would it be like if Pastor Greg was a perfect pastor? One day, it's going to happen. What would it be like if Pastor Chris was a perfect pastor? One day, he will be like that. There is an end in mind, and you have a part in that, to pray towards that end, to help towards that end. There is this sense of holy worry we have for each other that actually softens our hearts towards each other and firms our hearts towards each other for those kinds of moments where we need to step in. This is truly striving together in the faith. And as we pray on Mondays, would you join each other like this? Now, which one of us listens to Paul speak and says, I don't really want to be a part of a church that cares like that for me? I don't know anybody that would say that. We'd all say, now that would be perfect. My friends, we have that opportunity to be this for each other. It doesn't start with pure effort. It doesn't start with picking ourselves up and saying, I'm going to do this. It starts with what Paul is encouraging us to do. It starts with prayer. And so would we pray like this for each other and become so invested in each other's spiritual growth that it's not enough to say, ah, that's their decision. I guess they'll just make it and fall. Oh, no. Their failure is yours. Their joys are yours. This is what God wants to grow here and continue to grow here. So like a coach, can I say, we're good at this, but we can get better. We really can. Let's pray that God does this in our hearts, that he matures us in this love all the way until the day of Jesus Christ.
Let's pray, and, uh, and then we'll end with the closing song. And like I reminded you, if uh, when Nathan comes up, if you didn't make time for that uh, informational meeting about our budget at the end, you're welcome to slip out during the final song. But let's pray. God, Paul, in his pastoral heart, has reminded us just of what it is to be part of a community. We are not silos. We are not saved to an island. When you rescue us from the kingdom of darkness, you put us in the kingdom of light with other people. Sometimes that makes us uncomfortable. Sometimes that's difficult. But It's actually through stepping towards the community, not away from it that we find this level of joy that Paul describes with such superlatives that he says he could not pay it back even if he tried with thanksgiving. This kind of special joy is reserved only for people who devote themselves to you and your people. You have given us such a gift in this. And so help us with your help to nurture this kind of spirit at fellowship. To so grow in our love for one another because you're at work in us that we're willing to receive correction and not kick at it. That we're willing to pray for each other, to receive joy at each other's growth, to step in even if it hurts us or even if it causes us pain. And in the end, one day, we all will stand near each other on that day and see what it would be like to be complete in Christ. Oh, how we long for that day. So help us to live towards it. In Christ's name.